Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast, where we talk about all things writing and publishing. Today, we are excited to talk about First Contact Sci-Fi with Ferd Krott. Ferd is a late bloomer author, which, with his debut novel, Mission 51, being published at age 66. Ferd lives in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and is married with four children and 11 grandchildren. He works as an internal medicine hospitalist and in his free time enjoys birding, photography, and flying. Welcome, Ferd. We're glad to have you. Thank you very much, Carrie. Glad to be here. So we're excited to be talking about First Contact Sci-Fi. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your book, Mission 51, and how this story came about, what inspired it. You know, uh, the story had been brewing in my head probably since high school. And, you know, I'm old, so that would be like in the 1970s. I was reading a lot of sci-fi then, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have an alien and see the story from the alien's perspective? And then gradually it grew to, you know, what I think is a universal feeling, maybe close to universal anyway, that I think many of us feel like we are outsiders in a way, um, strangers, you know, outsiders looking in. And it became more and more like that, like this alien from his perspective, what it'd be like to truly be a stranger in a strange land kind of thing. Um, as I grew even older, I really began to appreciate my parents' challenges because they really were immigrants, first-generation immigrants from Mexico. Um, I lived some of that as, you know, their child. Um, and that's kind of how the story started coming together. As an immigrant experience, the story really is my parents' story. And the book is dedicated to them. Yeah, and I'm excited. I did get the chance to finish it, for, And I think that you're a really great guest for this episode. I mentioned before we hit record that your story kind of delves into the first contact, both from the alien's perspective and from, um, you know, someone here on Earth who is meeting the alien for the first time. You know, it also was pretty cool about this. Uh, what was cool is that, um, you know, as, as I'm reading through all these things and researching, etc., um, the Area 51 incident was in 1954. And that's the same year of my parents' arrival into this country. And that's really kind of what gelled all of this in my head when, when I realized that bit. I was born in 1955. So I remember the 60s very well. You know, so it just kind of fit. Everything fit. And that's why I chose that historical timeline for my story. Um, 1954 to 1969. So I'm looking at the description on my uh, subscription to Edelweiss, which is a librarian thing that gives me all the info. And it says that Dr. Linda is a Deltare? Deltare. Deltare. So she's the translator. How is it a spoiler to ask how she becomes the translator? It's part of her training. She was trained in linguistics and also trained in 
dealing with other species and trying to communicate in, in some ways. And uh, the government picked up on those abilities early on. And just as she's graduating from her PhD, just as she's ready to start a new job somewhere, she basically gets nabbed by the government. So, uh, you know, not to throw in too many spoilers either, but she is an, initially an unwitting and unwilling participant in this whole saga. Is that how you saw it, Jackie? Yeah, that's kind of how I saw it. it was a little, um, you know, unlikely protagonist. This maybe wasn't a field she studied, but she had a, a skill for um, translation, you know, with other species, you know, not just extraterrestrials, but in other species, right? It was mostly like marine life, right. the way oh. I understood it. And so that was an interesting twist. So she had a very big arc. And I was just very interested because first contact, I feel like, you're often, you know, with the world building of a science fiction writer, you're you're starting with uh, describing, you know, another world and how that would seem to a human. And I liked how you kind of flipped that upside down. And you gave us the first look through Zemet's eyes, the, the alien, and described Earth. And I think that's always super fun. I think that in a lot of stories we get to see that, but maybe it's not done in this genre as much, where we get to just, like, maybe someone had memory loss or some, you know, someone missed a generation or time travel, you're kind of getting to show them, you know, a world that us as readers are familiar with, but presenting it, you know, as oddities and as new. And can you talk a little bit about why you describe, you decided to take that direction first? Yes. Well, you know, the story is really a story on earth is adapting to, you know, a new world in story writing, of course, uh, act one, the old world, and that would be his world. And then, uh, you know, crashing into Act Two, the new world is planet Earth. But there was another bigger part of this. Um, the bigger part is I wanted to somehow convey the sense of loss, what an immigrant goes through when they leave their, you know, country, their city, their, you know, wherever. This really applies to anybody who has a significant change in location. But, you know, when you think about somebody coming from another country, it's totally strange. The culture, the language, not being able to communicate, really not knowing how you do anything. You know, it's uh, you have to figure out everything on how to adapt. And I wanted to convey that sense of loss, that you, they had lost family, had lost their familiar environment, their just their culture altogether. And uh, he even lost his, you know, crewmates. You know, so, and again, I don't want to throw any spoilers in here, but the, the, the sense of loss was the most important part for me to convey. So I had to show what he was losing. That's interesting because I've read a few other books in this genre and I've never seen it from the alien's point of view. Although there's probably ones out there, but I think that's really cool that you did that. And just looking at Jackie's questions, I am wondering how Laura's arc interacts with that. Did you have her more of like a foil for him or do they mirror each other? How did you, how did you decide to tell the story this way? 
It's Linda, by the way, but that's okay. Did I say something else? Sorry. You said Laura, but that's okay. I did. Oh, that's my boss's name. <laughs> no, the um, she was never meant to be an antagonist against uh, the alien. Right from their very first meeting, she was appalled at how he was being treated. And she right away was in his corner. And then, um, like Jackie said, her story arc is huge. She's a big part of the new world. I really liked how you just, you kind of took a no-holds-barred approach to, you know, the American government a little bit and some of the atrocities that probably happened behind closed doors and, and certainly happened in the 60s behind <laughs> closed well, doors. Well, we have to have a bad guy, right? And the government's always a good bad guy. Yeah, yeah, but the other thing I thought was really fascinating about your book is you have this alien who who is coming to this new world that's all, all you know, a blend of the hope of America with the ugly, you know, violence-ridden part of America. Um, yes. But then you also have him wanting to be part of this new world, and then you have the rest of his species maybe wanting to do what our country has unfortunately done many times in history, which is to dominate and to take over. So could you speak a little bit about why you wanted that to be part of your story? You really hit on another one of the big themes that I had in my head as this was developing, is that we're all good guys and we're all bad guys. You know, what they say is, uh, you know, everybody's the hero in their own story. And that's how I wanted to portray it, too, is that, you know, the government's good and the government's bad, you know, and my aliens as a species are good and bad. And we're all that way. We all have, you know, different angles. I even wanted to convey in some way that as some people are invaded, you know, wait a couple hundred years and they're the invaders. You know, it's uh, we play different roles at different times in history. Um, what I really didn't have a chance to convey, and I would maybe if there's ever a book, too, is that, you know, even the invaded people never totally disappear. There's always a blending of cultures. And I would love to portray that in another book is that, you know, yes, we have invaders. Yeah, we have the defeated, invaded, but they don't completely go away. Part of their culture lives on. Part of their genetics lives on. You know, it's uh, like that. We're all one. I love that you did that with the villains being the heroes of their own story. I've seen so many times that it's like the mustache twisting villain who has no other motivation besides being evil. So I like that you took the time to fill that out. And I don't know, we'll see how well I did that, you know, uh, as I, mean, I don't know how many rewrites there were of this book, but as, as you do it over and over again, I, I just wonder how much of it I kept and how much of it I lost. I can't wait to hear some of the feedback. Well, isn't that so interesting, Ferd? I find people just like raise their eyebrows at me when I tell them I don't remember, you know, what happened in my book. And it's like, it it's not that I don't have a relationship to the book. It's that it changed so much and yes. you don't necessarily remember which version made it to print. So you'll find those fans that know your book better than you do. And that's always so fascinating to me. And fans that will will pick out themes that you maybe weren't intentional about, but once they point it out, you're like, oh, maybe that was in my head somewhere. Yeah, like poetry, you sort of interpret what the way you interpret it. You know, it's uh, you know, the things that are important to you. And well, there should be plenty to 
think about in that book. Can you talk a little bit just about your actual process? So you sit down to write, you want to kind of write some fish out of water scenes of, you know, maybe Zimat seeing Earth for the first time or interacting with the culture. Like what, what did that look like? Where did you look for inspiration to, you know, describe something ordinary that, you know, we're just kind of take for granted? Well, first of all, I'm a plotter. I'm a complete and total plotter. You know, I outline everything and I try to get, when I'm doing the actual chapter, I try to outline pretty close to final form. My detail is pretty big. In that chapter, I know I want to start here and end there, you know, and uh, if I've done enough thinking about it and outlining, it, it just falls into place, you know, here to there. I like to finish it in each chapter in a little bit of a cliffhanger of sorts so that makes you want to continue reading. But I don't know if that's process or what, but that's kind of how I do it, you know. And as far as ideas, well, you know, they come out of real life. It's, you know, the things I've read and seen and thought about over my whole lifetime, they all played a little bit here and there in the book. And what about the other side? How did you come up with your inspiration for what um, this alien culture would be like? You you did make them fairly humanoid. And so you were yes. able to mirror a little bit. Um, and I'm sure that has to do with your inspiration and the type of story you're trying to tell. But what about those differences for creating an alien culture? What was that like? And did it change? You're right about the similarities. I had to have an alien that was similar because that's the whole point is trying to say that, yeah, we're strangers coming in, but we're still, you know, we're still individuals with worth and significance and, you know, contributors and everything else, right? So they couldn't be like insectoid or (laughs) something really crazy. They had to be close to human. And um, as far as creating their world in Act One, well, I also wanted to make it a little funky, a little strange. I wanted to give them a superpower, you know, and, and that's the uh, the electric bit that I'm sure you tapped into right away. And uh, I don't know. That's I tried out different things as far as location, etc. Maybe the uh, one of the interesting things is. Uh, the very opening scene, uh, the Torquean storm, you know, I wanted something theatrical. I wanted something that would play out on a TV or a movie screen. I wanted a, a pow as a first scene. So that played a big role, too. They even played a role into figuring out that electricity is their superpower. Is I, I wanted a, you know, a, a fairly dramatic and maybe even violent kind of first act first scene in the first act. And you could feel that. You definitely threw us right into the action, which was neat. And also kind of gave us a glimpse of maybe some of the tension between our protagonist and and parents uh, that would carry through a bit. Yeah, I'm just trying to like sort my thoughts because there are so many wonderful themes happening in your book, which I really just enjoyed. And I've been thinking about them even since I finished a couple days ago, just the larger picture. And it almost seems like you... You created this other planet, you know, it's almost kind of like a parallel Earth, almost if like we just kind of had a different evolutionary, you know, yes. track. Um, and so that was really interesting. Was there maybe a little, a few eccentricities and a few things that were different and their atmosphere was different, but really, you know, they kind of were just a stone's throw away from 
Yes, and that was humans. part of like the alien. I needed to it the alien to be humanoid. I also needed their culture to be similar in some way. So you're exactly right. That was my thinking. Is I wanted to, them to be different, but with elements of their culture that we could recognize. You know, again, to make uh, the reader feel that hey, we have more similarities than we do differences. You know, that that was an important thing for me to say. That reminds me a lot of the Star Trek episode or um, Next Generation episode, The Chase, where all the different humanoids, the Klingons, the Vulcans, the Romulans, they all find out that there is this genetic code that's spread throughout the universe. And that's why most of the Star Trek aliens have this commonality and this similarity. And I think that's a lot like what you probably have going on here, that there's that connection between people and alien, just like we have connections between this country and this country here on Earth. Yep. This race and that race, you know, male, female. I mean, you can think about it in so many different ways. So, you know, we're different, but we're the same. It's a very timely book, which I know it took a while to get through the process for you. And you said you've been noodling on it for a very long time. But but yeah, so I think that it will be all those themes are going to really stand out in that book and the parallels are going to be drawn. Um, so I think you've definitely you know written a powerful story with some really cool themes in it. So I would love maybe to switch gears a little bit. Carrie's sci-fi or um, Star Trek question just jumped me on that. Um are there any stories that were an inspiration to you or any authors that you read or that you kind of turned to when you were writing this story? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I read the usual sci-fi stuff that was available to me in the 1960s, and there was some pretty interesting stuff. Um, maybe early on, I was more inspired by TV. You know, if you think about my black and white TV sets in the early 1960s. It was Twilight Zone and uh, Outer Limits. And those were cool shows. Those were really cool shows with interesting sci-fi themes. You know, I had some friends that uh, we'd call each other after the episodes and we'd talk about them. You know, we kind of nerded out, you know, even at an early age. Uh, those were pretty inspirational too. And, and of course, um, I consider Mission 51 a sci-fi, but it's sort of crossed genre. You know, there's there's a huge bit of it that's historical fiction. And there's some of it that's kind of a love story. You know, so, you know, my inspirations came from so many authors. I couldn't name a single one. You know, I think that's the advantage of being older when you write is that you have a lot more experience to tap into. And uh, that's one thing I've mentioned to other people who want to write as a, as I said, well, just keep living life and uh, be aware, take notes, be present so that you can remember these moments and use them at some point in your writing. Because uh, I think, uh, well, I think most of us write out of our own experience. Yeah, that's really well said. We'll make sure to link to Twilight Zone and Outer Limits in case we have listeners, some uh, Gen Z listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, because you should go back and watch Twilight Zone. I still have yes. one episode that I think about regularly. It was the one where um, everyone kind of had pig faces. 
Yes. And the doctors uh-huh. were trying to, the pig-faced doctors are the ones considered beautiful in this culture. And they're yes. trying to talk this beautiful woman who takes off her mask and she's, you know, she's gorgeous. Like a beautiful that woman. she's right. the, the one who is like, you know, a freak. Yes. Um, and that, that episode just kind of stuck with me. Yes. Isn't that funny? It's a good show. I did have black and white TVs that I remember. And I also remember our first color set in 1964. Even that made its way into the book. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and, and you know, you did kind of have to be an alternative history writer as well yeah. with this story. It's because you took some things that were historical fact and some that were, you know, obviously you kind of played around with the Area 51. And um, is it Roswell? Is that right? Yes. You'd yeah. be surprised okay. at how many things are actually <laughs> real life. But you got to play with where to put that line for yourself, yes. which is kind of fun. Yeah. And try to put ZMAT in the middle of all of it, you know, which is the, the Forrest Gump kind of aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, you did. that's true. As you say that, I'm realizing he interacted with, there were multiple presidents. You were kind of showing the timeline. Yes. You would kind of fast forward and, and show us these little flashes of history, which is always really enjoyable. I had another thought, and I might just have to edit it and put this somewhere else because it's very random. But Ferd and I both have the same publisher, and they do tend to at- edit in a very cinematic way where they're really thinking about beats of screenwriting and kind of help novelists to think kind of with that in mind during the editing process. Not that it always has to end up that way, but that is one of the uh, methods that they use to kind of think about the arc of a story. Do you find that through that process, your story changed some in the grand scheme of things, or do you feel like it was all kind of little micro changes? That, that's a great question. I had that cinematic commercial kind of idea right from the beginning. I just didn't know how to do it. But um, my experience was a learning experience. I wasn't really educated as a writer. And it is Hollywood style. It is the hero's journey style. you know. Um, and it adapted itself to my story perfectly well. That's really how I wanted to say it. And as I reworked um, my story through uh, first uh, another outline and then hammering out, you know, the scenes that were cut and new scenes that were added, uh, the story was still my story. Actually, it was better. It, It said the things I wanted to say in a better way. So I thrilled with that process, the hero's journey format. I can stick to that and have a lot of fun with it if I do other projects. And you know what? I've adapted it to short things, even as short as 100-word microfiction and 250-word microfiction. I've I've adapted that, you know, hero's journey format to that, which gives you like two sentences for act one. And you know what I mean? Really, really short things, you know? So it works for me. I, I think I'll, I'll stick with that. I have to say when you had this short story in the Deception Anthology. I yes. I love that story. It was so funny. And now that you say that, I should go back and look for that. You'll see that Act 1 was the first 25%. Act 2 was the next 50%. Act 3 was the final 25%. You'll see that there's a midpoint to this switch. Yeah, there's everything, you know, that we were taught. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know a friend turned me on to uh, the Save the Cat calculator. So it's like a tool where you can plug in any word count and it will show you exactly, you know, where those beats should fall. 
And, you know, you don't have to follow it completely, but it will give you an idea of, oh, if we're not breaking in to the other world by this page, I'm probably a little off track. <laughs> right. It's, it, it helps me organize. And, you know, it's done that way because the story flows and it, you know, goes up and down. And, you know, it's, it, 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 that's why it's there because it's a good format. I love that format. I just, I, I use it for everything. It just gives a structure to the story. And when I, I'm assigned a lot of books for book lists that are in this kind of literary territory. And I feel like even if you're writing a non-genre novel, you should be able to follow that. But sometimes they play around with structure, like you were saying, Jackie, and I just find it hard finding a foothold in those books. So anytime I feel that structure in a story, it's much more satisfying. And I think it readers come into it, you know, not just from reading, but from TV and from other things that we've consumed, we come in with expectations. I think sometimes when they're not fulfilled in a way with the story structures we're familiar with, then it can feel disappointing. Yeah, no, I was mostly asking because mine followed it very to the letter. And as I'm writing a new book, I find my brain being like, well, what if you did this? And then, well, wait, that's not part of the hero's journey. <laughs> so trying to figure out where to push and where to leave it. Um, and that's kind of an interesting process. And that's fascinating. I don't know that I am um, where you are yet. You know, uh, the idea is that, you know, you learn the rules. And then once you really know them, you know where to break them. You know? yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know that I'm that good yet. I don't think I am either for yeah. <laughs> still trying to figure it out. That's what we're all here, right? It, it really is fun. It's a, it's a learning thing, isn't it? Writing a story is, uh, is there's a lot of learning to it. Yeah. Um, and I think once you figure out those things and you know what, what parts of the, the arcs you resonate with, what parts of the beat, you know, various beat sheets you resonate with, then you have more room to play because you know that those foundations are there. Yes. You have more freedom within the structure. Once you once you realize that there's a structure, it doesn't limit you. It frees you to do a lot of things within those bounds. That's how I see it, too. And it gives you those chances to kind of come down from those beats. If it's just action, 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 the reader gets tired, doesn't have time to get into that character development section. So you can have quieter scenes. And it's hard to find those moments. I find I have a really easy time lingering when the scene's really boring and then rushing through the exciting parts, which is probably the exact opposite of what you want to do. So write a page of someone doing dishes and then a paragraph of a fight. <laughs> I had the same thing. I just got some feedback from an editor that was just like, you need to increase the pace in this story. And I'm like, well, compared to my last couple books, the pace is like, so fast. So I'm just like, oh, now I got to do what you did, Ferd, and make the action start on page one. And that, that's just not the kind of writer I am. So got to work on that. Yeah, it's good to try new things and switch it around. Um, I guess as we're talking about structure, I know you, you like the hero's journey. Are there any craft books that have been helpful to you? Or You mentioned Save the Cat. You know, that that one was really particularly good. Story by Robert McKee. That one was really great. I enjoyed that a lot. Steering the Craft. That was another great one. Uh, the Save the Cat. You know, there's more than one of those. I've been, I enjoyed those. You know, so those are probably the uh, 
the big three as far as the books on craft that influenced me with this book. Uh, and they really were eye openers. I didn't even know they existed when I did the first draft of Mission 51. I took it to heart. So I would love to invite you to share with our listeners a few pages of Mission 51 if you're up for it. Yeah, sounds good. How about if I start right from the beginning? You know, um, uh, that note from the author. This is the very opening part of the book. I met Dr. Linda Del Tare during a birding festival at West Virginia's New River Gorge in the spring of 2010. I was struck by the enthusiasm of this elegant elderly lady as she observed a constellation of starlings sweeping through the sky. I remember her looking away from her binoculars, exclaiming, did you see how they responded in unison to the leader's chip call? She focused her gaze right at me, and since there was no one else nearby, and I was uncertain whether her question was rhetorical or not, I felt obliged to respond. I'm afraid I didn't hear the chip call or see the flock's response. To be honest, I'm not that tuned into communication behavior in flight. She started an animated ramble about flock behavior until she stopped herself short, apologizing. I'm sorry, I get carried away by that sort of thing. I've been interested in communication theory since my college days, part of my master's work and doctoral thesis. Oh, please go on, I told her. I may not know much about it, but I'm interested. I love learning new things about bird behavior. What I said was true. I was interested. I never lied to Dr. Del Tare, or almost never. So we had a friendly conversation about this and other avian topics as we worked our way back to our group of fellow birders. We then encountered each other on and off for the next few days, establishing a comfortable acquaintance. At the end of the festival, we exchanged the typical farewells. I hope we run into each other again someday at another birding event, I said, and I meant it. She impressed me as a smart, pleasant, and interesting lady. Curiously, we did run into each other repeatedly over the next few years at almost every birding event I ever attended. I saw her at the Maygration Festival in Cape May, New Jersey, then at the Pea Island National Wildlife Refuge in the North Carolina Outer Banks. I saw her at Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania, at Merritt Island in Florida, at Maggie Marsh in Northwest Ohio, and again at the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Our little acquaintance gradually grew into a warm friendship. We shared each other cell phone numbers and email addresses. So after that, I wasn't as surprised to see her at other birding events, since clearly we both shared the hobby and the passion. But looking back, it was a little weird seeing her everywhere I went. One day, she even showed up in my hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, at one of our regular Audubon activities at Bethabra Park. I was taken aback at her presence, surprised at how far she must have come for such an unimportant event, or perhaps just to see me. After an enjoyable morning of birding, I asked her to join me for lunch, and she readily accepted. It was then that she finally unloaded the burden she had been carrying, and for whatever reason, she decided to unload it on me. Ferd, she said with a coarse cough, while lighting up a new cigarette with a dying ash of the one she just finished. There's something I've been anxious to tell you, something I've never told another living soul. But my days grow short. I have lung cancer. It's going to kill me. And what I know cannot die with me. I simply have to pass it on to someone I can trust. And from the first time I met you, I felt you could be that person. I've been following you for a few years now to get to know you better, and I'm convinced you are the one. Well, gee, thank you, I said, not knowing exactly how to respond to that. No, don't thank me. This is nothing to be thankful for. A wave of anguish washed over her wrinkled face, 
and then she fought off tears before she pressed on. She gazed into the distance, her eyes darting back and forth. I could tell a lot was going through her mind, so I sat patiently while she gathered her thoughts. I was abducted by the government a long time ago, against my will and under duress, she said. Here, take notes. She handed me a pen and a pad of paper. She proceeded to spin a fantastical tale about an alien from space, about government conspiracy, about technology and large corporations, about danger to herself, and a lifetime of running and hiding. She told me that she was the only one who could speak to the alien. She called him by name, Matt. She said the world was not ready to accept him, so what she was about to tell me should remain a secret. I nodded understandingly, wondering where she was going with all this craziness, and listened patiently to her compelling story. We sat there for hours while she told her tales, an epic story spanning decades. At times, she became vis visibly agitated, and she often looked over her shoulder in a comedy of suspicion. I was absorbed and fascinated by the energy of her storytelling, and frankly, by the story itself. She spun a good tale. Lunch turned into dinner. And when she finally finished, she said, I know this must be very difficult to believe, but I have evidence. I hate bringing you into this. The government's been after me for most of my life, and I'm afraid they'll come after you someday, too. I'm sorry. Now, I've heard this sort of thing before. I'm a doctor, for God's sake. I'd made my diagnosis hours previously. This was a classic case of paranoid schizophrenia, heavy on the paranoia, with a solid persecution complex. She was clearly out of touch with reality, amplified by a fascinating delusional construct consistent with her obvious intelligence. The only part that didn't fit was her awareness that this would be difficult for me to believe and that I would need evidence. I find that most paranoid schizophrenics aren't aware of or sensitive to the viewpoint of others. She pulled something out of her backpack. Then after looking over both shoulders twice, she placed a glowing pyramidal object in my hands closing my fingers around it. Guard this with your life, she said, with an intensity in her eyes, and never say a word of it to anyone. I promised Linda I would do as she asked. She examined my face, looked deep into my eyes, to convince herself of my sincerity, I suppose. And that was settled. She seemed visibly relieved and strangely worried at the same time. Promise me again, don't show the Trangula to anyone, to anyone here. I assured her again that it would be our secret, and I meant it. I was only a friend, not her doctor, but I always honor confidences, or nearly always. But now I feel I must unload this stuff myself. My friend Linda is dead, and someday I'll be dead too, maybe sooner than I expect. Her story must be told. There was proof. Beyond her notes, I had that elusive pyramidal object until it disappeared from my locked safe. I don't know how. Now all I have to share are the words of a possible paranoid schizophrenic, but it would be crazy of me not to tell her story. I know too much. So here's the first part as it was told to me by one who was there. Signed for Nendocrat MD, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, May 16, 2021. That was fun for, did you want to add anything or you want to just leave the, the veil of mystery around the intro? I do it veil of mystery. Because it sort of does uh, allude to what some of the stories will be as it unfolds. But I don't want to say much more than that. Fun. Thank you for sharing. Well, before we let you go, could you let our listeners know how to keep up with what you're working on, where to um, get a copy of Mission 51, and anything else that you would like to mention? 
Sure. Uh, Mission 51, of course, on Amazon or the Inkshare site, Barnes & Noble, Target. I mean, pretty much wherever you buy books, you can find it. You know, just search Mission 51 in my last name. Other books are, you know, the writing block books that I've contributed to. That That's on those anthologies. And I'm pretty connected social media-wise. Probably Facebook is one of the easiest ways to get a hold of me. And uh, I'm open to any contacts, human <laughs> or extraterrestrial, <laughs> at any time. Nice. Thank you very much, Jackie, Carrie. This was fun. This was fun. Thanks for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for the continued support. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at writingblock.com, no K. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing.